session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get into the book of the week, I um, wanted to make a few announcements. The first one is that on Wednesday's show, this Wednesday, uh, November 7th, I will be joined by clinical psychologist, Dr. Tabasson Vahidi, and she's going to be coming on the air to talk about anxiety and especially OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, what it is, what it isn't, and also talk a bit about treatment, which is really interesting. Um, I think when people hear about the ways that they treat OCD and phobias, I think it's quite fascinating, especially this concept that if you fear something, the only way to get over that fear is to face it. And this is definitely true when it comes to things like phobias or even OCD, but even in our lives in general with smaller fears you might have. And it actually, in a way, will be related to the book that I'll talk about today. But really looking forward to having her this Wednesday, November 7th at 12 p.m. for my live show. And if you want to call in about anxiety disorders, especially OCD, we will be taking calls. So feel free to call in on Wednesday's show. I also want to make an announcement for my friends at the Iranian American Bar Association. I've gotten to uh, go to a few of their events and uh, they're having a big conference. I just wanted to make a quick announcement for them and first just tell you that the Iranian American Bar Association is the only national organization which connects Iranian American legal professionals, including attorneys, judges, students, and professors to each other and the Iranian American community. It educates the Iranian American community and our elected officials about legal issues of interest to our community, advances and protects the rights of the community. So that was from the Iranian American Bar Association. And here's some information about their upcoming conference. Um, their national conference will take place in LA at the Sofitel Hotel in Beverly Hills on November 16th and 17th. Tickets can be pre-purchased online at iaba.us or iabaconference2018.com. And if uh, you purchase today, you can still get a discounted rate if you use the code SPECIAL underscore 25 for a 25% discount. So that's November 16th and 17th here in LA at the Sofitel Hotel in Beverly Hills. Um, if you are in the legal field or anything related to the legal field, I uh, hope you'll go there and check it out. And that's by the Iranian American Bar Association. All right, let's get to the books. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about next week and next Monday. I won't be doing a show because it's Veterans Day here in the United States, a national holiday. Um, so it'll be on next Wednesday's show. But the book of the week is going to be Before You Know It by John Barr. Or I don't know exactly 
how to say it. It's B-A-R-G-H. Uh, before you know it, the unconscious reasons we do what we do. So another book looking at the unconscious and how um, things that are sometimes out of our awareness can affect what we do and think and feel. And so looking forward to talking about that book next week, Before You Know It by John Barr. It kind of looks like um, how we say light in Farsi, Barr, like a light, like a light, like a light. Um, so I'll be talking about that next week on Wednesday's show. But the book of the week for this past week that I'll talk about tonight is The Courage to be Disliked by Ichiro Kishimi and Fumitake Koga. And the title itself I loved. I've talked about this before that oftentimes not only do I judge the books by their cover, it's more that I judge them by their titles, um, but then I do try to look into it a little bit and see if it seems something of interest. And this book, The Courage to be Disliked, uh, the title I think is really great because it's something... Um, that I think we all can hope to have that courage to be disliked. And the book itself, it's written in an interesting way um, between a youth and a philosopher. So the younger man and an older gentleman who is a philosopher, and the younger man comes to talk to this philosopher about his um, thoughts or ideas about certain things, but he comes in with this kind of angst and this anger of, I'm going to put holes and tear apart this older philosopher's ideas. And spoiler alert, and maybe you would probably expect this, but he comes to see that the philosopher has a lot of wisdom in what he's talking about and comes around and uh, accepts a lot of what the philosopher is talking about and teaching him. Um, in some ways written like how Plato wrote some of Socrates' conversations with people. Um, Socrates himself didn't, I think, write much at all, but Plato wrote down a lot of it, and sometimes it was in these conversational formats. But it was a really interesting book, very easy to read because of this conversational format, so different than some of the other books I've talked about because of that. Um, it reminded me, although that was different, the book with Paul Ekman and the Dalai Lama. I think I forgot what that was called now. Um, but anyway, emotional awareness, something like that. But anyway, so this book was actually focused, and I didn't know before I got into it, on the psychology of Alfred Adler, who is one of the big names in psychology, but not often known as well as Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. But he was around the same time um, as those people. And also he was in uh, Vienna. He was uh, born in Vienna. So he was part of that group, and he even, in a way, worked or maybe was a colleague of Freud's, but he definitely came up with his own theory. He broke away from some of Freud's ideas. Uh, and one aspect of his psychology, and even his whole theory is called sometimes individual psychology, which doesn't mean it's in a way self-centered or just focused on the individual, but actually that the individual is seen as a whole. So in that way, it's a holistic concept or theory that all of us is part of us, meaning that my thoughts, my drives, my feelings, it's all one thing in a way. We can't divide that any smaller. That's actually the word individual comes from this idea of being indivisible, can't be broken up into any smaller pieces. Um, but it's this idea of looking at the whole person in all of these ways, that everything becomes part of one whole. Uh, but the book, it does a great job of talking about Adlerian psychology, individual psychology, 
and talking about different aspects of it. And one really interesting thing, and it, it goes to the title of this book, The Courage to be Disliked, is this idea that um, people choose a lifestyle. And lifestyle means a pattern of just behaving and acting with the world. And oftentimes we'll, we will be unhappy with this lifestyle, but we don't change it because changing it is scary. And this, uh, you know, relates to a quote I shared a few weeks ago that I'd come up with about, or this idea of don't let the fear win. Um, that when we want to make a change, when you want to do anything meaningful or good in your life, you're almost always going to have fear and anxiety that come along with it, but don't let the fear win. Go ahead anyway. So this idea that whenever you want to make a change in your life, it's going to be difficult and you're going to be afraid. So very often people are choosing their unhappiness. So they're unhappy with their life. They're unhappy with what's going on in their life, the patterns of things that are going on. But they have to realize they're choosing this pattern because they're more afraid to make the change. They don't have that courage. And that's why this word courage is, it comes up a lot throughout this book. And even uh, at one point, the philosopher says, yes, Adlerian psychology is a psychology of courage. And that what we often do is we blame our unhappiness on our past or on things that have happened. So we say, I'm this way because of what's happened to me. Um, and there's this kind of idea of ideology that, okay, if it's a cause and effect. Because of what's happened to you, you have to be this way. But Adlerian psychology doesn't go with that idea. It's that actually you can make a different present and future for yourself. And your past does not determine who you are and who you're going to be and how you're going to live. So it's definitely a psychology of courage and a psychology of that you have power to change yourself and your life, which I think it's not just that it's optimistic and uplifting, but I think it's accurate um, that we often decide that we can't change our lives. We tell ourselves we can't because we are afraid. And so you might have something in your life that you don't feel good about. Or you might think, for example, you want something so bad, but you don't realize you're also afraid of it. People, for example, want to get married or be in a relationship, and they say, I want that so bad. But they don't recognize the ways they prevent themselves from doing it because they're also afraid or getting a job or having a career. And there's this concept that he brings up throughout the book of a life lie, that these kind of lies we tell about living life or about our lives. And even a big one is being a workaholic or saying, I don't have time for something. So we people who are workaholics and who put their whole time into working think there just isn't any time for anything else in their life, but they're not realizing that they're choosing to live their life in that way. They're choosing not to have time for other things. And we use as, that as an excuse. So we might use the excuse of, I would want to be in a relationship, but I just don't have the time. And so because of that, I can't be in a relationship, not realizing that we're actually very afraid of being in a relationship. And as a result, we found a way out of being able to do that or telling ourselves, I want it, but I can't have it. And that I can't is something we're lying to ourselves and saying that. And so I think this, this point is very important to me because you see it all the time in people's lives and especially when you work with clients in therapy this idea 
that people often choose the miserable story that their life becomes, but they don't realize how much they have created this idea because they sometimes think, why would I want to be insecure about this? Or why would I want to not be successful or not be happy in a relationship? But we realize that it's that we don't have that courage to take that step. We have to have the courage to take a step forward. Um, another interesting idea that comes up in the book is this idea in Adlerian psychology that all problems are interpersonal problems. Everything has to do with our relationships with other people. Even something like um, if someone doesn't want to leave their house, they talk about shut-ins, someone who maybe doesn't go to school or work and stays inside the house. It's still interpersonal. It could be out of that fear of other people. Or if someone has a fear of speaking, of course, that's an interpersonal problem. But that everything comes down to interpersonal problems. And this is where this the title of the book can come into play, The Courage to be Disliked. Uh, now, in their conversation, the philosopher and the youth, even the philosopher acknowledges that people like to be recognized or like to be liked. That makes sense, to like to be liked. No one likes being disliked. But that to really be free, and this concept of freedom also comes up in the middle of the book, what does really freedom mean? And one way of looking at that is freedom is living in a way or not being concerned about what other people think. That is some ultimate form of freedom. When I live my life not worried about what other people are going to think, if they're going to approve, disapprove, like, dislike what I'm doing, but I live my life for me. I do what I think is right. And that's the only way I can live my life is if I do it for myself. But we, if we really look at our lives and what we do and don't do, most of us will probably realize that a lot of our life is dictated by what other people are going to think. And so that's why the title of the book, The Courage to be Disliked, is really powerful to me. This idea that in order to be happy, and if we really want to achieve a level of individual freedom, we must lose the concern with what other people think of us. And by that, I don't mean that in your relationship, if you're making people, or I don't want to say making people unhappy, that's maybe the wrong way of saying it, but if you're having bad relationships that you don't care, or if people say they're offended by your everything you're doing or things that you're doing, you don't care at all. You want to take that into account, but that you are doing things because you think they are right. And so this, this idea, the courage to be disliked, I think is something very powerful, that if you can achieve this feeling that it's okay, I'm not going to be liked by everyone, and I'm okay with that, that can be very empowering and very liberating and give you that sense of freedom. Because we also know at the end of the day, you can't make everyone like you anyway. So when we make that our goal, when we make our goal to make everyone like us or to make everyone happy, what ends up happening is we get really stressed out trying to make it happen. And then we also fail because it's impossible. Then we feel bad about ourselves because we couldn't meet this task that was impossible to begin with. And it's a really negative cycle and people will find themselves in that. So if we can have that courage to be disliked and courage to actually just live our life. And again, the individual psychology from Alfred Adler has a lot to do with this idea of courage, but having that courage is really in essence necessary for happiness to live a happy life. Um, now this book had a lot in it 
So I wanted to actually devote some more time to it. So after the break, I'm going to continue talking about this book, The Courage to be Disliked by Ichiro Kashimi and Fumitake Koga. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. We'll be right back. Continuing my talk about the book, The Courage to be Disliked by Ichiro Kashimi and Fumitaki Koga. It's a book uh, that focuses on Adlerian psychology, the psychology or the theories created by Alfred Adler, individual psychology. Um, and actually, there's some terms that he's come up with that you might be familiar with or he's more famous for. The inferiority complex is one of them and also the superiority complex. Um, you've probably heard that before. It's made its way into even like you can say uh, pop psychology or just even the way people talk about people when they're uh, giving their own an analysis on individuals. But we hear that term inferiority complex and where it comes from in... Uh, individual psychology is this idea that we all have feelings of inferiority, starting from being a, a child. A small child comes into this world helpless, and as he or she looks around and interacts with people and their parents, they feel inferior because they're not as strong and capable as people around them. But even throughout life, we can have feelings of inferiority, and those themselves are not completely maladaptive it talks about in the book. You're going to have them sometimes um, about different aspects of who you are. So that itself is not the complex, having a feeling of inferiority. Actually, those feelings of inferiority can push you towards making things or yourself better. So if you see that you are not good in something or you try your best and other people can still, let's say, do better than you in school, well, you, you just have to try harder. And you can accept that, something that I'll talk about in a second. But that feeling of inferiority could push you forward. So those feelings themselves don't have to be bad. When it becomes a complex, it's a little bit more complex. It's a little more complicated. That's more than just that. It's um, when these feelings uh, become to an abnormal state or an abnormal mental state and become part of like a way of thinking about yourself. And then we hold on to that. And so rather than that feeling pushing you forward, it holds you in your place that because I'm not smart enough, I just can't succeed. And so you stay there. That keeps you stuck. But again, having that courage to break out of that means that, okay, this is who I am. This is what I've been given, essentially my equipment um, and my brain and whatever else, and I'm going to make the best of it. So the inferiority complex is when we take that feeling of inferiority, which itself doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can even push us towards something good, but we own it in a different way and make it part of who we are to a degree where we can no longer break out of it. And there's also the superiority complex, which might not come as a surprise, comes from the same place. It's just a way of compensating for a feeling of inferiority. Uh, we've talked about this many times on the show before, this idea that people who are cocky or who are in a way narcissistic or bragging too much about themselves actually don't feel good about themselves or trying to compensate. So it's in a way two different ways of dealing with um, not being able to handle these feelings of inferiority or getting stuck in them, either owning it too much in the sense that I am this 
inferiority, this inferior being, or going to the other side and trying to be superior, neither one of which are healthy, but we can actually look at ourselves and say, this is what's who I am and try to move ourselves forward. And this um, leads to this other idea that comes up in the book about self-acceptance. And he says, rather than self-affirmation, which is that I'm good enough, I'm, you know, a, a princess, a unicorn or whatever people might say to themselves, but this idea that I am what I am. And so self-acceptance is actually having a genuine understanding of ourselves. And I'm, I very much agree with this point that, uh, knowing yourself as you are is more valuable than thinking you're better than you are or imagining that you're better than others. And that's another big point in individual psychology is that we're all equals, which I really think is important. It's something that uh, is in essence necessary to have a healthy sense of self is to recognize we are all equals. But having self-acceptance is very important, is that I see myself as I am. If I got a 70% on this test, I can say, oh, it was because the test was unfair or because of this or because of that. Or I can really say, maybe I didn't study that hard or I started hard as I needed, or maybe I'm just really not that good at this topic. Maybe this is how smart I am, so I have to work even harder to get a better grade, having an, a realistic look at myself. And this word acceptance, um, when we say self-acceptance, people sometimes hear that as saying resignation, meaning that this is as good as I am and that's it. Or this is what I am, love it or leave it kind of a thing. But that's not what acceptance to me means. Acceptance means accepting what you are now. doesn't mean you might not want to improve or have progress in whatever area of your life we're talking about. But acceptance means being okay with who you are, what you are now, and even loving that. Just like you would love a child. When a child is learning how to walk, you accept it and you love it when it's trying to stand and it can't quite stand. By acceptance, you're not saying, I never want you to improve in how you're walking and getting your balance and your strength and being able to take steps and then slowly even being able to run. But you're saying, I love and accept you right now that at 12 months of age, you can stand and almost take a step, but you can't quite make it. I love and accept you as you are now. And we can do that with ourselves. When you accept yourself, it doesn't mean you're a finished product. You're never going to try to improve because you accept it and that's it. It just means you can love and accept and be okay with what you are or who you are now. And so I think that's a very important point. And going back to this idea of equals, um, it talks about that we should try to create what they, he calls horizontal relationships rather than vertical relationships. So horizontal relationship means a relationship between two equals, that we don't see one person as better or more important than the other person, but we just see each other as equal beings. And I think that's, that's quite uh, important. And, and in a more fundamental sense, at one point, the philosopher and the youth are talking and, um, the philosopher shares that there are uh, clear objectives from Adlerian psychology for human behavior. And that is to be, there's two, to be self-reliant and to live in harmony with society. So to be self-reliant and to live in harmony and to live in harmony with society. And for those two objectives, um, 
there is a psychology that supports these behaviors, and that is I have the ability and the consciousness that people are my comrades. So we have to have that belief in ourselves that I have the ability for life, for living, for whatever it is that life asks of me, and also this feeling that people are my comrades. And that's something important in the book. This idea comes up that looking at people, we can see them as enemies or comrades or friends. And if we see them as enemies, we're basically choosing to, to live unhappy. We're not going to live a happy life. But if we accept that people are our friends, and at some level even that they're good, doesn't mean that no one does anything bad and no one will ever hurt you. But that's not your task, something that I'll get into. But this idea that people are your comrades, they can... Um, they will, there are, there's good in this world. So in some way you have to have, in my kind of understanding of how I read it, uh, optimism or an expectation at least, not that they're always going to be good, but that you can have good relationships with good people. And I think that is necessary. Now I mentioned this idea of tasks, and that's another theme that came up a lot in this book that comes up in the psychology of Alfred Adler, which is that we have tasks in our lives. And a lot of times what ends up creating problems is that people misunderstand whose task is at hand. So, for example, he uses uh, the idea um, of a child who is not studying. And sometimes the parents not recognizing that it's the child's task to get his or her homework done and to study, they take it on as their own task. And this creates a problem. And we've seen this happen so often in uh, our families and in all families, but definitely in Iranian families where parents will get too involved with their kids' lives or think it's their task. It's about them, whether it's about studying, who they date or marry, or other aspects of their life. They get overly involved, and this creates problems. Um, so he mentions that it's a very important thing for us to always remember whose task is at hand, whose task is this. And when people m make mistakes in this area, Unfortunately, it creates a lot of problems. But when we look at tasks, for example, my task is just to be myself or let's say act how I'd like to act. How someone responds to it, that's not my task. That's not my responsibility. Of course, I can look at if I was very rude or treated someone in a bad way, I should think of those things, of course, but I'm not responsible for how someone else responds. That's not up to me. I can be myself, and then it's up to them how they will respond. But what happens in uh, relationships when we're overly involved with each other, we don't have this clear sense of individuality, of differentiation or sense of self, is that I'm going to care too much about what you think or feel. I care too much, or I think I'm supposed to affect what you do or you don't do. And so because I get overly involved, that starts to create problems in our relationship. And I think that is very, very true and something um, that does create a lot of problems. But I want to come back to this idea of courage that is in the title, The Courage to Be Disliked, because this concept is so important to me for everyone to, to realize this. Uh, kind of the opposite of courage in this sense of the word or this way of looking at it is comfort. That we've chosen this lifestyle, borrowing that term from the book, we've chosen a lifestyle that is comfortable. 
And usually when we think of comfortable, if I say a chair is comfortable or a place is comfortable, we, that usually that means it feels good. And this can get mistaken because when people say comfort zone in their lives, very often they're very unhappy. Or as I like to say, if you're staying in your comfort zone, you're going to be unhappy, unsatisfied, and unfulfilled with your life. You're not going to actually feel very good. It's not going to be the life you want to live or the life you're going to feel good about. And almost all of us in a lot of our lives are choosing comfort over choosing the courage or taking the steps, having that courage to try to change because it is scary. We'd rather choose the hell we already know than to try to risk making a change and not knowing what can happen. We don't know. You know, if you're at a job you don't like, you complain about it, you complain about it, you do have the power to change your job, but there's no guarantee that the next job will make you happier. You can't guarantee that. Just like if you're in an unhappy relationship, sometimes people say, I'm in an unhappy relationship, but how do I know I'm going to find someone better? There's no guarantee that you're going to find anyone at all or someone better. We, that's not possible for someone to tell you for sure that's going to happen. But staying in that relationship that's making you unhappy, to me, that's your task at hand in that moment. Or if you're at that job that you're not happy with, staying there, that's your task to determine or decide what to do with it. What's going to happen next is unknown. And that journey, uh, it's going to make you scared. And that's why it takes courage. This title in the book, The Courage to be Disliked. We have to have the courage to take those steps. But look at your own life. And look at all the different areas and aspects of your life. And I'm sure for any of us, there's some parts we're not happy about. And think about the life lies, as it's talked about in, in this book and in Adlerian psychology. The life lies you tell yourself why you can't make a change or why because of your past, your past has determined your present and your future. And you, there's no, it's inevitable. You can't do anything about it. And very often you'll realize that there's stories you're telling yourself about this, that things have to be this way or things can't change because that allows you to stay comfortable. That allows you to take the pressure off of yourself to avoid making a change and trying to take the step in a new direction, having that courage to go forward and create a new life. And so individual psychology, the psychology that was developed by Alfred Adler is definitely an empowering one because it tells us we have the choice to make a new life. Your past can't determine your present and your future. You have a choice and you can make that change. You can even choose to be happy and create that life for yourself. And I think that's not only, as I mentioned in the first segment, something that sounds optimistic and hopeful and uplifting, but I think it's really the truth. We make ourselves stuck very often. Or sometimes I like the analogy of thinking of a cage. It's like we put ourselves in a cage, but the door is open. So we can walk out, but we put ourselves in our cage and then we say, oh, if it weren't for this cage, I would be happy or I would do this or I would do that. But the door is open. We have to just have the courage to step out, to go into that unknown, to create something new for ourselves. And it's up to us to do that. And so this book gets much more in depth in these concepts and uh, the psychology that was created by Alfred Adler called Individual Psychology. And I highly recommend it um, if you 
want to read it. It's called The Courage to be Disliked, the Japanese phenomenon that shows you how to change your life and achieve real happiness. And the authors are Ichiro Kashimi and Fumitaki Koga. So hope you'll check that book out. All right, going into our last commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. We'll be right back. back so here in the united states tomorrow tuesday november 6th is election day um and so i wanted to talk a bit about voting and i hope everyone votes here in the united states if you haven't already some people did early voting or they've sent in their ballots but i hope everyone will vote and you're hearing a lot of people talk about this idea of voting and this is the most important election of our lives and I think we've heard that a few times, so I know sometimes people hear that and maybe doesn't give them any sense of urgency. Um, But I did want to speak a bit about just this idea of voting. And first and foremost, I hope people living in countries like the United States, living in democracies, are grateful and value getting to vote at all because not everyone in the world gets to vote. Um, And it is something that really is... It's a right in a way, but it's also something we can be grateful for to have that opportunity and that privilege to vote because we don't always have that. And I personally uh, feel that to vote is something I take very importantly or I really value because it is the one way or one of the ways that we get to have a voice. And is democracy perfect? Of course not. Um, I think there's a quote from Winston Churchill of the democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones that have been tried. So it's kind of like the best worst. So is it perfect? Absolutely not. But it does seem to be the best that we've been able to come up with so far as far as how to run a government and especially when it comes to things like elections. Uh, But I think many people don't value their vote enough. And so, like I said, many people throughout the world and especially throughout history didn't have this privilege and opportunity to vote. So I hope that gives people some idea of the significance. Another thing I often hear is that people say, well, my vote won't make a difference. Um, And so they'll say this, for example, if you were looking at the 2016 election here in California, if you wanted to vote for Hillary, people say, well, Hillary's going to win California anyway. So what's the point of me voting here? Um, or it's not even going to be close. So what's the point? Which to me seems that people don't quite get how I understand democracy, which is it's not about you making the vote that makes the difference or that your vote has to make the difference or it's not worth making. It's that democracy is that everyone gives their voice, which in this case is in the form of voting, and then we see which candidate or which ideas, if it's like a law or proposition, whatever it might be, are the ones that are the most popular, and we go with that. That becomes the one that uh, wins, so to speak. Um, And not only, to me, is it about the winning, but that everyone should vote. First of all, I think every voice should be heard. And I even, I was going for a walk today, and this 
idea, I think maybe even some countries have this, but almost having like a, a tax or a fine if you don't vote, I know it can come off very, um, like uh, kind of sounds like totalitarian government imposing some kind of tax on people for not voting. But I almost think there should be something like that, that people almost should have to vote, that every voice should get heard and we should encourage that to happen. But to me, even the idea of, well, even if, this measure is going to pass or this candidate is going to win, we should have an idea of how much of the population is in favor of that. It's very different if something went 60 to 40, whether, or if it's like 90 to 10. So if a lot of the yeses or the people who wanted a certain candidate don't vote, we also don't get an idea of really how popular or unpopular something is. And here in the United States, sometimes the, the percentages of people voting, especially in the non-presidential elections, is incredibly low. People don't get involved at all. But going back to this idea that your vote has to make the deciding factor, to me, that is not democracy. That would be like a monarchy where you're the king or the queen. You want to pick the candidate or you want to pick the law or you don't want to vote at all. Uh, and to me, that's almost ridiculous. So it shouldn't be just because your vote might make the difference. And almost never does it literally come down to one Yes, a lot of people that think like you, if they didn't vote, if it's like, let's say, a few thousand, that would make a difference, you could say. But um, in general, almost never is something coming out of one vote. So really, in that sense, you could say your vote never counts in the way you're thinking of it if it's it either has to make or break the election in one way or the other. So if that's what you're waiting for, you're probably never going to want to vote because you're almost never going to have a situation where it's literally coming down to your vote. And again, to me, that means you want to pick the candidate yourself or the law yourself, which I think goes away from democracy and goes into um, something else where you're the king or the queen of the land. And that's not how it's going to work. It's really you with your fellow citizens making this choice, making this decision um, together based on everyone's voices being heard equally. And then that determines uh, what, who wins, what happens going forward. Another thing people will say is like, well, I'm not into politics. I stay out of politics. And politics has like a negative connotation, maybe in some ways rightfully so, because we look at politicians and we see lots of corruption or lots of bad things there. Um, but to say you're not into politics in the sense that you don't vote or you don't care about who's winning or losing or what's happening, that in a way is like saying I don't care about the world or the world around me. And I think we should all be concerned citizens. We should all care about what's happening, who's in power, what laws are being passed, what laws are not being passed, and what's going on in our lives. Um, it's, I think, one of our responsibilities to be involved with what's happening around us, to ignore what's happening and to go into our bubble, I don't think is a way of really being related to the world in a healthy way. And I know a lot of people say, well, the news is depressing. And I'm not saying you have to sit and watch 24-hour news channels for hours a day. But keeping ourselves informed, I think, is each and every one of us, it's our responsibility to do so, to keep ourselves informed about what's going on in the world and what's happening. Because also, uh, I think it's very important to vote. And I'm sure on Instagram tomorrow, there will be thousands or probably millions of people who will post pictures with their I voted stickers, and maybe even I'll do that. Um, but it's not just about the idea of voting because 
it looks good. And this kind of comes back to this idea of the courage to be disliked, the book I talked about today. And to me, it's so important to always look at why you're doing what you're doing. So today I'm talking about how I think voting is very important, and I hope everyone takes it seriously and will go ahead and do so here in the United States tomorrow if they already haven't done so. But if you're voting because you want to say you voted or to wear the sticker and take a picture, that's the wrong reason to vote. But what I was getting at is that it's not enough just to vote, and of course the intention is important, but we want to try our best to be uh, everything we can do to be an informed voter, to know what we're voting on and who we're voting for, not just show up and start pointing at things or, you know, if we like the person's name, voting for them or just voting for this measure or that measure because it sounds good or we don't even know what it's about. You want to go in informed. That is also, I think, each person's responsibility. And yes, does it take some time and are the measures on the ballot usually kind of boring or at least some of them boring? And is it confusing? Because sometimes you read about these measures and both sides sound really good or sound really bad. Like the yes on prop whatever is to have more money for schools to provide this and that. But then the no vote also makes teachers have more something else that's good. And you're kind of like, wait, they both sound good. How am I supposed to choose? So it's not always so simple. It does take some time and effort. I recognize that. But I think it's time and effort that we all should be putting in if we care about what's happening around us. And we all, whether we like to believe it or not, we all do because it does affect us. Then we have to put that time and effort. So voting is nice. Take your picture with your I voted sticker and spread that awareness and maybe even encourage others to do it. Because it is good when people see other people doing something. These things are contagious in a way that people see, okay, it's good and it's acceptable or I should do it. There's a could be a positive peer pressure in that way. But I hope people will also take it seriously and that they'll actually make sure they're going in as informed as they can be to, to make a vote that matters. So you have to make your vote count. First of all, just by going to vote, that of course has to happen for your vote to count, but your vote should count in that you've thought about it, you've thought things through, and it's representing what you actually think if you were to look at the issues and look at the candidates. So your vote has to count not just nominally that you made a vote or you casted a ballot, but that you actually thought things through when you went forward and, and did so. So I hope everyone here in the United States will go vote tomorrow and that there's been a lot of people pushing for that, celebrities and on TV shows and lots of things on social media trying to get people out there. But I, I really think it's something very important. And I do wish there was closer to 100% turnout. It's not even going to be close to that. But I think it would be nice because I think everyone should take this civic duty, this responsibility, and again, a privilege because not everyone gets that in the world, to take that opportunity to vote and to make sure their voices get heard and to have that courage to make whatever they think is the right thing to make that happen. Because I, I do think we as individuals, and this relates to the idea of individual psychology, um, there is this idea of the community is also a big part of what Alfred Adler talked about. But I think we do have a responsibility to our communities that we can they try to ignore what's going on around us and not see what's there. But that would be choosing the comfortable route to try to just make things easier on ourselves because we don't want to see something. And even when I say that word community, um, I was thinking about it 
today that we can get caught into these ideas of my neighborhood, my city, my state, my country. Um, but I would hope that when we think of community, we actually think of the whole world. So, of course, in the ballot measures you probably will get to vote on tomorrow if you're doing so in the United States, it very often can just be for your city or for your state, or maybe you're voting for, let's say, a senator who in some ways will represent your state but goes and uh, to Congress or to Senate and will be affecting the country, but really it's not usually for the whole world. But I to think, to me, if we can all think of the world as a community, that is actually going to be the better mindset that we should be going towards. Because sometimes I think, well, care about your community. And does that just mean the people around you? Yes, those are maybe the people you can affect the most, but we definitely want to make sure we don't ignore or forget people in other places who are suffering and going through something. And to quote uh, Martin Luther King Jr., injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So we are in some ways responsible for what's happening in this world and to see everyone as equals. And this does come back to this idea from individual psychology from Alfred Adler that everyone is equal, that you can see the whole world as your comrades, as it was put in this book, that everyone is a friend doesn't mean by friend you have an actual relationship with them but that you can see them that way so if you're here in in the united states i hope you will vote tomorrow tuesday november 6th i do realize that sometimes people listen to these shows uh, once i put them online it'll be after the election so maybe i should have done this last week a little too late for that but anyway if you're listening right now hope you'll vote tomorrow um and just wanted to make another announcement for my show on Wednesday, where I will be joined by clinical psychologist, Dr. Tabasum Vahidi, and we are going to talk about anxiety, uh, and especially OCD, and some of the treatment for obsessive compulsive disorder, and phobias, and things related to um, anxiety disorders. And you can call in the show, 12 to 2 p.m. on Wednesday, 310-441-0555, and you'll get to have an expert in the field of OCD and anxiety disorders, Dr. Tawasan Vahidi, answering your questions. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to everyone who's listening out there and to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.